Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin at the University of New South Wales campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra. Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History podcast series, where we examine an event in the history of the Royal Australian Navy. The Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales is supported in this series by the Royal Australian Navy, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. In this, the second of the three episodes, we hear from historians who gathered for the 2019 King Hall Naval History Seminar, which discussed Australian Naval Chiefs of Staff. Their collective work will be brought together in a future book entitled Australian Naval Leaders. The seminar was held at the Australian Defence Force Academy in June 2019. This episode deals with the Chiefs of Naval Staffs who successively led the Royal Australian Navy during World War II and in the early years of the Cold War. The discussion is led by Commander Alastair Cooper and the panel consists of Lieutenant Commander Sam Farrell-Lee, Sub-Lieutenant Thomas Fathers, Dr Greg Gilbert, Vice Admiral Peter Jones and Commander Greg Swindon. Uh, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me. I think we might start um, by just talking about each chief, um, how they got to become the chief of naval staff or the first naval member and chief of naval staff um, and what the major challenges were that they faced during their tenure. And as we did previously, we'll head through it chronologically. So Peter Jones, um, uh, Admiral Collins was the first in this era. Could I ask you to talk about him, please? Yes, certainly. So uh, John Collins was in the first class to graduate from the Royal Australian Naval College. Um, so he joined in 1913. Uh, so he was the first Australian-born um, first naval member. He was also the uh, the youngest. And after Admiral Creswell, he was a s- served for the second longest uh, period. Um, he had been, um, if you like, identified as the first Australian graduate to uh, become the the, uh, first naval member for some time. Um, If you look in the correspondence really from about uh, 1941-1942 when when, uh, Prime Minister Curtin was keen for an Australian to head the Navy that his name and his classmate Harold Farncombe were identified as the people to, uh, as the two men to lead the Navy. and uh, and really that followed uh, in terms of Collins's um, um, I guess preeminence was the fact that he uh, commanded HBO Sydney in the Battle of Cape Sparta. Uh, both Collins and Farncombe had been task group commanders, and Collins first, and then um, Farncombe uh, second in terms of commanding the Australian Naval Squadron in the Pacific War. Um, and their careers, as been indicated in the previous uh, podcast had been uh, managed, if you like, to give them experience um, uh, in terms of both staff training but also experience in the Admiralty. Um, Collins had been in the Admiralty in the 1930s in the plans area. He had been Assistant Chief of Naval Staff in Navy Office in Melbourne um, at a critical time in the lead-up to and and, uh, at the commencement of the war. Um, The way circumstances played out that the the Admirals... um, both in the fleet and Navy office, were ill and essentially Collins was running Navy office at the time of declaration of war um, and as a, um, uh, a byproduct of that, he actually uh, developed a quite a, a very good working relationship and 
which was to go to a personal friendship with uh, Menzies when Menzies was Prime Minister in the first iteration and, of course, coming back in 1948, Menzies was there again as Prime Minister. Thank you. Um, can I just get you to talk a little bit about what the big issues were during his tenure? So um, there's probably two bits to that. One was the environment. So the environment was... Uh, in terms of the fleet, uh, it was uh, largely war-worn um, and also it was the era of the atomic age and, and what sort of navies do you have in an, an atomic age? Um, the, one of the legacies from his predecessor, Admiral Hamilton, was that the, uh, the two fleet carriers were, were going to uh, um, enter service um, and that there'd been some opposition both within the services to the fact that we're going to have carriers um, when we um, may not have had funds to um, fund all the um, desires and requirements from the three services. Also, Air Force were, um, had made an unsuccess unsuccessful push for uh, the Air Force to operate the aircraft on the carriers. So he identified that carriers were uh, his number one priority to make sure... Um, they were a success in introduction. He was helped by two things. One was the fact that the fleet commander at the time was his classmate Harold Farncombe. Harold Farncombe had been the first um, RN officer to command an aircraft carrier. He commanded HMS Attacker in the Mediterranean during World War II. So he understood um, a lot of the issues you would have to deal with in terms of carriers. Um, also, he had Commodore uh, Eric Willoughby, Royal Navy, who came out. At, um, he had been on the same staff course in UK as Collins. Willoughby uh, was an aviator and he had responsibility for um, helping the introduction of the fleet air arms. So he had a, a pretty good team to, to do that, but that was a, an abiding focus. The other focus was what to do in terms of replacing the uh, destroyer and uh, frigate force. And, um, and this was at a time when the Soviet Union was bringing into service um, a large number of quite fast submarines. And um, Collins was very alive to the fact that um, they had to modify some existing ships that could be modified to become ASW frigates, had to have a shipbuilding program. And what he settled on, we needed to have an indigenous program of building about a dozen destroyers which were modern enough fast enough and had the ASW capability to be able to, um, to to meet requirements. So there was a full structure. The second issue he had was personnel. He had a, a shortage of personnel. He had a shortfall of about 3,000. Um, so of a, um, he needed to grow by 3,000 to, to be able to man the carriers and, and the force. Um, he turned to UK to, to get extra uh, people. He also um, um, rescinded the, or was able to get the uh, Women's Royal Australian Naval Service re-established. It had been um, in a short-sighted move, disestablished after World War II. He had that re-established. He, he was a very firm supporter of having women in the Royal Australian Navy. 
um, and put a lot of effort in terms of the introduction and to make sure that they are int introduced in a contemporary way. Um, so there was the manpower issue, service conditions. At that time, in 1948, there was no pension scheme. Um, now, work had been um, gone underway. Ha uh, another classmate, Harris Showers, had been working on this and, um, and in, indeed um, uh, Prime Minister Chifley had been a strong supporter as well. Um, in 19, in, towards the end of 1948, a pension scheme came in. That also helped Collins in terms of trying to build and sustain a, a, a workforce. And the final issue that he, had to, he wanted to do uh, is to forge relationships, independent relationships with the US Navy following their close workings in, uh, in the Pacific War and, um, uh, and the important thing here is personal relationships. The relationships he formed as, a, as a, the Commodore in charge of the, of the um, Australian squadron and where he would have US Navy ships in the squadron in the Pacific War a lot of those people that he worked with in, as other task force commanders or task group commanders, they were now in senior positions in the US Navy. He was able to leverage that, um, and that, I guess, was crystallised in the Radford-Collins Agreement, which, showed the, uh, which articulated a clear delineation of areas of responsibility in the Pacific between the Royal Australian Navy and the US Navy. And so, he, if you like, it was part of that maturing process for the service. And probably the final point was that Collins and Hamilton were the two admirals who were chiefs of the Navy who had served at sea in both world wars. Collins was, his viewpoint was very coloured by his wartime experience and as a result he was very focused on having an offensive capability for the Navy and that's why he put such priority on the carriers because he said that is what gives us an offensive capability. Thank you. Collins was obviously succeeded by um, then Rear Admiral Roy Russell Dowling. Tom, can I just get you to talk a little bit about Roy Russell Dowling who succeeded um, uh, John Collins and how he came to be uh, Chief of Naval Staff and what were the major issues that he faced? Yeah, sure. Um, so for Roy Dowling, um, his uh, ascension to, to CNS was um, not something that he expected uh, and was not uh, a part of the, the bigger plan in, in the sense that um, Farncombe was expected to succeed Collins. Um, following uh, Farncombe's uh, resignation, uh, the Navy was left with... Uh, a lack of officers potentially who could take over from Collins. Uh, it was Collins' idea that uh, he would stay on in the position until a suitable replacement could be found. Uh, and alternatively, uh, they were floating the idea that another exchange officer might be brought from the UK, uh, which is not something that would have uh, gone well over with the government at that stage, uh, who was seeking to have that image of having an Australian officer, an Australian educated officer, mm -hmm. as a professional head of the Navy. Um, so in the end, uh, Dowling was selected as, as CNS, um, which again is not something that he would have expected. Uh, there were some issues that he faced which were much similar to what uh, Collins was facing, obviously. Uh, Manning being probably the key issue. Um, certainly in Dowling's own assessment, Manning was considered to be his key concern uh, throughout his tenure um, in the sense that uh, 
unemployment was very low um, and as such uh, the uh, desire for people to, to get into the Navy was, was less than uh, what had been. Uh, following on from that, uh, conditions of service uh, were seen to be an issue by Dowling as well in terms of uh, accommodation for personnel, um, which he considered a lot of uh, establishment accommodation to be decrepit uh, and, and not suitable uh, for any Navy personnel. Um, and that, uh, that their pay wasn't sufficient either to, to keep them interested in, in, um, in re-engaging. Uh, but potentially the biggest uh, strategic question and problem for Dowling uh, and for the Navy more broadly was the idea that they were being um, pulled in two different directions at this stage uh, between the Royal Navy um, and, the, and the US Navy, um, particularly following uh, this declaration from uh, Menzies that uh, from now on, you know, technology, naval technology was to be built to, uh, to US standards. We were seeking uh, great integration with uh, the US Navy. Um, and for Dowling, who had a significant um, personal loyalty to the Royal Navy and to officers in the Royal Navy, uh, as many of his colleagues would have had at the time, um, was something that, that deeply troubled him. And that's reflected in his uh, personal correspondence as well with the first Sea Lord. Um, Mount Button, um, in that he seemed quite distressed. He was saying, um, you know, does this, does this pivot uh, away from the Royal Navy um, to the USN for these political reasons, potentially, does that make us any less uh, faithful uh, friends of the, of the Royal Navy or, or something to that effect? Uh, so it's something that troubled him uh, quite deeply personally as well. Um, yeah, so I would say those are certainly the primary issues facing Facing Thank you. And that uh, push towards um, a Royal Navy, uh, from the Royal Navy to an alignment with the United States Navy is something that probably takes us quite neatly over to his success, uh, um, Admiral Burrell. And Jack, I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about how Burrell came to be chief and, and what his major um, concerns were. Uh, thanks, Alistair. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, Admiral Burrell um, followed a career trajectory which was quite common for uh, naval officers, especially seagoing ones, as you would expect. He joined the Navy in 1918 um, and a succession of sea postings, very little time ashore, but perhaps no less time ashore than, than his contemporaries. Um, and at the time that he was selected, uh, he was fleet commander and he was fleet commander for the second time and that was the first time that it happened. Um, it was a surprise. It was a surprise to him, um, and no doubt would have left him wondering where exactly he stood uh, as far as the future was concerned. But he also gave uh, an impression that he wasn't particularly covetous of the position of CNS. Um, and in, in his own memoirs, he recounts that uh, when he was selected, he felt that he was too young, uh, and that he was in other ways not ready. That he was not really. Um, capable of dealing with the administrative issues and the bureaucracy and, and in particular the financial aspects of it in, in a way that would allow him to prosper in the position. And I think it's probably fair to say that um, subsequent events at least bore that out to some extent. Uh, and it's also, I think, uh, almost impossible to judge his time at CNS without also considering uh, the impact and the influence of the Navy Minister John Gorton, who, um, unlike any previous Navy Minister, took a real a genuine interest in the job, chaired virtually every naval board meeting uh, and took a, a huge amount of time over the financial issues. In fact, 
um, for those who've been through the, the mill, it was almost like having an ASRPN who could go and sit in cabinet with you uh, or for you. Um, it, it was a real bonus uh, for the Navy through that whole period. Um, now, as for what his main challenges were, well, there was certainly continuity from uh, Admiral Dowling in the sense that personnel issues were not going to go away. Um, there had been an Allison report in 1958 which did a lot to, um, <coughs> to, to um, solve some of the um, pay problems, um, but um, there certainly was no sense during Admiral Burrell's time that things like accommodation, certainly shore accommodation, were improving. And in fact, it, he, he makes a, an explicit point about visiting Lewin um, late in his term and finding the, the state of the junior um, recruit accommodation there absolutely appalling. So whatever had been identified earlier clearly had not been corrected. But far and away, um, Admiral Burrell's main issue uh, in, in his entire tenure was the material state of the Navy. Um, the Navy had been described actually by the Chief of the Air Staff in the mid-50s as being little more than a police force or a Coast Guard. Um, and for the most part, the surface fleet comprised Second World War and in some cases pre-Second World War ships. Um, certainly that some modernisation was occurring but not an awful lot. Um, the fleet air arm, which was central to the fort structure, um, was also facing um, some fairly immediate decisions as um, the current aircraft, um, the uh, gannets and venoms were about, well, were going to run out of life in about 1963. Um, so um, he, he was confronted with uh, having to regenerate the surface fleet, and he was confronted with having to regenerate um, the fleet air arm. And as we all know, um, he was at least initially unsuccessful in, in the case of the fleet air arm, but the government deciding in 1959 uh, that fixed wing flying would cease. That left him um, with, um, I guess, a renewed focus on renewal of the surface fleet. And he was at least conscious of the fact that times were changing, technology was changing, and the RN was being left behind. And um, so, the idea of, of a guided missile class destroyer became foremost or uppermost in his mind. And there was um, a long and involved um, set of developments uh, as to where we would go for this ship. He clearly preferred uh, that we would buy uh, a British ship and the county class were just starting to come into being at the time. And that was his preference. Um, and despite um, what we've heard about... Um, the government having made a decision that we would move towards American equipment, I certainly saw no uh, sign at all in uh, Naval Board deliberations leading up to the DDG decision uh, that we were in any way focused on that um, until literally six or eight weeks before the decision was made. The Navy's clear preference and Admiral Burrell's clear preference appeared to be um, the county class. Um, the decision in the end, um, and, and the, I guess that there is some contest over this, but um, he couldn't convince uh, Minister Gordon that the, um, the counties were a, a good way to go because we weren't just going to buy the county as the county came. Um, we don't do that. Um, they were going to change the propulsion system. Um, they were looking at pulling sea slug out, which probably wouldn't have been a bad thing anyway, and replacing it with Tata. Um, so it was going to, going to be, in, in a sense, a new ship, a different ship, and clearly it was going to cost more. So eventually, um, Prime Minister Gordon suggested to Admiral Burrell, and th this is on a, um, an audio interview that's a, 
of Gordon that's available from the, the National Library. He said, just, oh, you're, giving, you're trying to sell me a bastard ship. I'll go away and come back and tell me, give me a ship that I can buy that's got everything in it. Um, and so Admiral Burrell came back and said, well, I think it's going to have to be the, the DDG. Um, so that's how, that's how we got to, to go American. Um, he had grave reservations uh, about doing so, more because of the, the logistics uh, and culture change uh, impact than anything else. Um, Admiral Burrell knew, the Navy knew, um, by then the Tata was probably a, a much better missile than, than Sea Slug because um, Sea Slug was being trialled in Woomera and we, we had access to some of the results of that. So um, they, they were the main issues confronting him. They, there were other aspects of the surface uh, force as well, which we can go into later, I guess. Thank you. Admiral Burrell was succeeded by the owner of some of the most spectacular whiskers ever to have served in the Royal Australian Navy, um, uh, from uh, uh, Vice Admiral Wilfred Hastings Harrington. Greg, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about how Admiral Burrell, uh, so Admiral Harrington, came to be um, CNS and and what challenges he faced. Right, uh, Admiral Arch Harrington was a character, uh, but also you know, I would say lovable character, and most people who knew him would say the opposite. He was a bastard. And he was a... But he had joined the Royal Australian Navy College in 1920. In the, he graduated. He was, you know, very... He was an excellent uh, professional officer throughout his whole career. He uh, served throughout the interwar period, into World War II, uh, excelled... Uh, was obviously one of the people who was going to be a leader, a future leader. Uh, during, uh, after the 1950s, he was given command of one of the carriers. He was fleet commander uh, when Admiral Burrell was in charge. And in 1962, he took over as Chief of Naval Staff. So his development would be the classic development of a senior naval officer in Australia at the time. And uh, he excelled. He, he actually, as a chief, he could make decisions uh, and implement things as, uh, as well as anyone, if not better. Right? But he recognised very early that his training was as an operational level thinker. He had gone on an imperial staff course, had that uh, understanding of strategy, but he'd never exercised strategic thinking. And he realised, being uh, quite intelligent, although not, a, not an intellectual by any means, but being very intelligent, he realised that this is something you needed to do, understand strategy and get that right. When he took over, the work that Admiral Burrell did was actually proceeding well. And in fact, Admiral Burrell suggested that he was a, a good man to take on and keep on pushing the uh, projects that uh, Burrell had initiated. And he did that. And uh, despite quite a few difficulties with the integration of DDGs and American uh, training and culture into the Australian Navy, he managed to get that through. He helped introduce the submarines, uh, Oberon-class submarines, and, you know, there was a whole string of other things, mine warfare, you name it. He did not initiate these jobs, these material acquisitions, but 
he made sure they happen. Unfortunately, during his time, there were some major disasters, and the Voyager disaster is obviously one of them. Now, his reaction, which I won't go in too much into the Voyager disaster, but his reaction was that he thought the peak, it was evidence of the decline of officers in the Royal Australian Navy, the way they were selected and trained and the way that teamwork, because it wasn't just the officers, it was more people, but the way that teamwork did not work on some ships. Anyway, that was his view. Uh, but a lot of people didn't like the way he stood aloof and protected the Navy. Anyway, that's all beside the point. The main point was that he realised within a short amount of time that the, he was an honest professional, but his views were not necessarily the solution that the government listened to. So if you wanted professional naval advice the obvious thing would be to ask the Chief of Navy. Uh, in fact, the government at the time relied on lots of other sources and they were all as good as each other to the government. So uh, there was a view that, and Admiral Harrington's view, was that if you listen to the wrong information, it's as good as being lied to. And he suggested that some people were liars, some people who advised government were liars, uh, perhaps they just gave their alternative views. Uh, but uh, as an example, one of the advisers to the Liberal, liberal government, it was Menzies at the time, uh, was a liberal ex-liberal politician who was an ex-POW during World War II, uh, army background. And of course, these are the type of people you could listen to as an alternative to the Chiefs of Staff, uh, Chief of Navy, Navy being one of the Chiefs of Staff. In the past, in the 50s and before, the Royal Navy people or the Chiefs of, Navy, uh, Chiefs of Staff back in the UK were, gave an option to the Australian government for an alternative view. So if you didn't like the view of your own Chiefs, you could go back to the Brits and say, well, what do you think, you know? And they generally had people who were somewhat senior, more experienced. The problem is that in the late 50s, those chiefs in the UK lost all credibility. Uh, within England, they lost all, or within the UK, they lost credibility, um, rightly or wrongly, probably wrongly, uh, but the government in the UK didn't trust them the government in Australia wouldn't trust them, and there was a big gap in policy. Uh, so, times were changing was one of the things I've written in my draft paper. And the 19... So, Harrington was there from 1962 to 65. Times they were changing, not in the way that they were all hippies or anything, but the whole society was changing. There was... Um, uh, missiles, space race, all those things which the Navy had to actually take on. So Harrington thought this was something that needed strategic vision and a real management of that change. It was one of, you know, if you want to talk about a major transition, it was one of those times of major transition. So uh, by the time he left in... February 1965, he had realised that he, he had pushed everything he could, he had 
made every change he could, but there were fundamental problems at the strategic level within the Navy that needed to be addressed. So his haul-down report, which is what, uh, for those who don't know, every, every Chief of Navy, when they leave, does a little report saying, this is you know, my outlook, this is where we're going, these are the things I haven't addressed. His haul-down report was a five major criticisms of the strategic thinking within the Royal Australian Navy. And I think that those five points are actually what he couldn't tackle. And those, those five points are really ongoing strategic issues for Navy from that time, before that time and since. Uh, some have been changed totally from the 60s, not necessarily solved, uh, whereas others have been uh, just left in abeyance. Uh, I'll have I got one minute to go through. Maybe, maybe come back in a tick. Okay. We, 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 um, so, to... no, well, there are five. I could just say what the five are. Go the right? five and then we'll move on. So, the five sea power, lack of comprehension. We talked about that. Two, Navy's lack of offensive capability. You don't win wars by defending only. Three, the overall standard of the officer corps of the Royal Australian Navy needed to be fixed. Four, inadequate logistic support. We could buy ships, but the transition into service was always a problem, uh, and how we supported them was always a problem. And number five was the ponderous, as these are his words, ponderous naval administration, which has all been fixed, I think. That, no, maybe not. All right. Absolutely agile. Um, we're going to skip a couple of the chiefs that uh, uh, succeeded uh, Harrington. Uh, there was Admiral McNichol and then Admiral Smith. Um, and then uh, ask Sam Farrell-Lee uh, to talk to us about Admiral Peake, who takes us into the 1970s. Sam. Thank you, Al, and uh, good, good morning to everyone there. Uh, good evening from New York. It's a pleasure to be with you uh, today. So Admiral Peake, like, uh, like some of his uh, contemporaries who went on to be CNS, um, he joined the Navy at a very young age, at 13 years old. He, uh, he went into the college uh, in 1928, had a distinguished uh, career, career, seagoing career throughout the Second World War. Uh, he served uh, in HMAS Hobart at the Battle of the Coral Sea, and then he was on board HMAS Australia. He was on board Australia uh, both at Leyte and at Lingayen Gulf, uh, uh, both at Leyte and, uh, and at Lingayen, Australia was a victim of Japanese kamikaze attacks, uh, quite significant casualties taken at Leyte, uh, peak while standing next to Captain Deshano, who was obviously uh, mortally wounded. Uh, Peake's experiences uh, at, at both these battles it, it impacted him quite, quite heavily. He went on post-war to command a whole range of RN ships, commanded Shoalhaven, Bataan, Tawuk, twice. He was, uh, he was uh, commended uh, for his uh, command of Tawuk by the Americans in the Korean War. Uh, that followed a couple of separate commendations for his, uh, his World War II efforts. He commanded both of Australia's carriers, both Sydney and Melbourne. He served as flag officer commanding Australian fleet. He served as fourth naval member and importantly for Peak, he served privately and as he served as the uh, as the second naval member responsible for personnel. 
He had he had very deep interest in naval personnel, uh, uh, quite a degree of personal care for for his sailors, and it came out of some personal tragedy back in in 1946. He was in the UK to lead the uh, the victory, the the RAN contingent, the victory celebrations, undertake a couple of courses in England. His wife, his first wife back in Australia, uh, passed away during childbirth. He uh, sought permission from the local uh, Australian Navy authorities to return to Australia, and that permission was refused. That struck him quite deeply, and it was something that, that stayed with him for the rest of his life. Um, in terms of Peak's personality, which is kind of important when we look at Peak's CNS, a couple of things kind of stand out. Firstly, he was he was he was very he, he had a deep-seated cynicism towards politicians, uh, towards very senior. Uh, defence bureaucracy and towards naval leadership. Uh, this, had, this had initially um, uh, come to his attention uh, as he was a, uh, a midshipman at the Naval College with regards to what he felt was being let down by government over the promises not to move the college and uh, during his time there he'd go to Flinders Naval Depot. And this is something that stayed with him. He's reported on throughout his career as um, as, as lacking a degree of tact, he was he was overly honest. He, he 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 spoke his mind quite readily, and even did that to quite senior people. Um, second part of his of his of his personality and his approach to leadership, I guess, he's a very warm and, and amiable individual. Um, he's he's very engaging, but he's also in a way quite difficult to work for. He's very confident in the in in, in the current naval uh, uh, policy frameworks. Um, you might say he is very concerned with meticulous staff work and with ensuring that these frameworks are, are followed meticulously, more so than perhaps you might expect as you get into the very senior ranks, looking at the applicability and the suitability of these policies and, and naval administrative arrangements towards the current environment. He, he, he didn't necessarily see things easily at, at that level. So you come to see it. You, you come to peak as his CNS. It's uh, it's late 1970. He's taking over from Vat Smith, who's been promoted. He comes into the job, and it it would appear on the face of it he he doesn't have much in terms of strategic vision. The big issues that confront peak during his during the next three years are issues which are which which are put upon him by the tide of events. And, and there's there some very major issues that will affect Navy going forward for the next several decades. Um, looking at those, I guess, um, from, from top to bottom, he, he took up the position of CNS eight months after Sir Arthur Payne is appointed as the new Secretary for Defence. Payne, obviously, is a political expert. He, uh, he's worked at the apex of government for quite some time. He understands how to deal with politicians. He understands how to how to network. He's very ambitious, and he sees he, he sees a need for very significant change with, within defence. He he wants to consolidate what is at this stage the defence group of departments, um, uh, consolidate capability planning, bring the service chiefs under the authority of a new chief of the defence force staff. He's, he's looking at centralising. Everything is about a holistic defence approach rather than separate services approach. This is quite challenging for the services um, and for the service chiefs, for Peak especially. 
um, he doesn't he doesn't have those skills in, in, in how to engage in that political type of conversation, and and he has faith, to the most part, in in these in this in, in the current naval management approach in the way that the, the the naval board is working. So this is this is quite this is quite confrontational, and he's and he's forced into a very reactive approach. He's he's reacting to uh, to the to the policy settings and to the intent and the objectives of Arbitrain. Um and that and that this is this, this is quite a difficult period for Navy. It's quite a difficult period for me. Secondly, you're looking at the strategic situation. Uh, the UK is just withdrawing uh, its sewers. Announced that in '67, and that's happening during peak time. Nixon has announced the Guam doctrine. So more responsibility on uh, on on America's Asia Asia Pacific allies. Australia is increasingly talking about defence self reliance. For defence is 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 being seen as less relevant. And and peak peak has to deal with this. How does how does the Navy exist when we're looking at 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 uh, uh, being more being more self reliant in terms of defence? What what are the impacts for Navy? It, initially, he thinks this is this is going to work okay. He believes in self-reliance, and he thinks that a strong maritime force can be the core of, of, of defence. Defence self-reliance. Australia is, is is a maritime country. Peak really gets that. But things things begin to change, and especially following the election of the Whitlam government in late '72, you see. Uh, Tang starts to implement some of the Whitlam government's strategic policies. And there are some big changes here. Uh, the, the 1973 strategic basis paper comes out and says that Australia is unlikely to face any strategic threat, any, any strategic pressure in, in, the, in the immediate future. We start talking about concepts like warning time and core force. So less of an investment in defence. There's less, less of a priority for, for the Whitlam government in defence as they look to more of their... Uh, their, their their social policies that, that they're trying to implement. Peak has some issues with this. He's, he's looking at the strategic situation, the, the 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 Guam doctrine, the UK pulling out east of sewers, and at the same time, the Australian government is saying, well, we're, we're putting less focus on on defence. That doesn't really make sense to him. But at the same time, he's not really sure how to how to how to effectively engage and have that conversation. Comes even more to a head when you look at funding and the, the, the 1973 defence budget impacts Navy very significantly. 6% reduction in personnel strength, 25% reduction in the flying strength of the fleet air arm, 20% reduction in fleet steaming time, decommissioning of ships, cancellation of projects, especially projects that are very... Um, that are very close to Admiral Peake's heart, like the Light Destroyer project, the uh, uh, the, the DDL. So it's 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 confronting for for him in a number of different ways: defence reorganisation, the loss of or what he, what he sees, what, what Navy sees as the loss of Navy authority, the ability of of, of Navy to to speak independently to government. Um, Strategically, again, he's he's seeing a new strategic policy be implemented uh, upon him and the Navy, but he doesn't feel that, that that Navy has been able to have a proactive voice. It's 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 all it's all reactive. Kane is doing it as a as like a fait accompli 
quite quite, quite a difficult period. Um, uh, obviously, with 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 the defence budget, that's something Pete takes um, Pete takes quite personally. He he considers resigning probably at least a couple of times, especially when it comes to the cancellation of the DDL project, which Navy put quite some effort into. And I guess in the uh, in the in the cultural sphere, you're seeing you're seeing following the earlier Voyager tragedy, where Navy had to look at Navy had to look at not not just being, I guess, a bit of a law unto itself. It had to know how to engage with, with, with government very effectively to be a servant of the people, and it was learning those lessons in in a, in a difficult way post Voyager and 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 the Royal Commissions and everything that brought out. Um, when it comes to peak time, you're seeing a, a similar type of thing going on when it comes to Navy operating within the defence bureaucracy, rather than Navy being being this purely independent service, being able to do its own capability development, to 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 speak with a naval voice to government. Suddenly, it's about it's about Navy being part of this bigger, this 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 developing behemoth of of the the defence program. And it's it's not something that Peak really uh, uh, knows how to deal with very well. So you can see from his perspective, this is this is a very challenging time. From the Navy's perspective, it's a very challenging time, and the way in which Peak, I guess, is, is challenged and struggles a bit in how to deal with this has some relevance for for future Chiefs of Naval Staff as well. A number of people have mentioned the difference between seagoing officers and, and, and I'm not sure if the term is fair, but political admirals, the, the people who are, are um, uh, actually heading up uh, the, the service. And I think here it's interesting to reflect on the difference between command and influence, the difference between operational or, or, or um, military strategy and national level strategy, and then to think about the relationships and the, the, the character and type of relationships that are required in those different roles. Um, Peter Jones, I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about the relationships Collins had and the nature of them and the way it either enabled or, or prevented him from being able to achieve what he did during his time. Uh, certainly. So... I think what we've learned so far is every uh, uh, First Naval member, Chief of Naval Staff, has had a unique set of circumstances. Um, that was very much the case with John Collins. So as I mentioned, he, um, he had a relationship with uh, the Prime Minister from a, uh, his previous time in Navy office. He was coming in with a lot of expectations, so he was the first of the Australian-born uh, officers to take command. Um, Sir Frederick Shedden, who was the Secretary of the, of the Department of Defence, he was very keen for Collins to come. He saw Collins as an, a new young groom um, and part of the new generation. So he, um, so while um, Hamilton and uh, and Hamilton's predecessor had had difficult relations with Shedden, Shedden was. It was well disposed to Collins before he even arrived. Um, the Argus newspaper said when Collins uh, 
arrived, they said he has great ability and also a remarkably attractive personality, which has won him hosts of admirers both in and outside the service. Collins was unique in terms of he was a national figure who was Chief of Navy. He was a national hero from World War II. He was more well-known than any of his other cont- uh, counterparts in the other services. So um, in the Army, it was Lieutenant General Sir Vernon Sturdy and Air Force was Air Marshal George Jones. Now, both of those officers were three-star officers. Collins was coming in as a Rear Admiral because he was so young. He was 48. He was coming in a, as a Rear Admiral, so he had a rank differential. He, he wouldn't be promoted because of the rules of... Um, uh, how many years seniority as a as a rear admiral before he could be promoted to vice admiral? So he had to wait two years. So not, it wasn't until May 1950 that Collins had the same rank as his counterparts. But it didn't affect Collins. He he because of his standing, because of his connections, um, that was not a limitation to him personally. I think the other piece to the puzzle, which um, we haven't really talked about too much, is. The relationship between uh, Collins as uh, head of the Navy and the naval bureaucracy. So the Navy has had a very strong heritage of um, strong public servants in senior positions within the Navy organisation who maintain um, the administration, the finances and so on. So he had in his time um, uh, Nanki Nankervis, who had been in the position as, uh, as a, if you like, the Secretary of the Navy Department um, since 1939. He had been in the Navy office since 1915. Um, he was replaced by Tom Hawkins, who had also been in the Navy office since 1915. Now, some um, of Collins's predecessors had had a very prickly relationship with these two prickly people um, and um, and part of that was a, a bit of superiority of being in uniform compared to the public servants um, Collins had none of that Collins really respected and got on well with both those gentlemen and and the public service generally and he was particularly fulsome in his praise of the people who ran the, the naval board um, secretariat he really appreciated the work that the public servants did in the Navy. And that was a really important aspect, I believe, of his success. And he had the ability to get on with people who mattered. Um, and, um, and while he may not have been the warmest CO in the fleet, he was highly respected and all that sort of thing, but a lot of people didn't take to him in the same way. But in this environment, he was incredibly effective. He socially very good. Um, his wife, during his tenure, had a very bad accident uh, where she was badly burnt. Um, as a result, he didn't travel as much. Um, but even still, he was a terrific uh, networker. And the other piece to the puzzle, which is um, makes makes him stand out, his ability to, to manage the media. He um, excelled in that really since the Battle of Cape Sparta. Um, where he was at great pains to engage the, the, the press um, to the benefit of um, some disparagingly say about him personally. Um, but I think more seriously, 
he saw that if you can be um, a very uh, public face of the Navy, explain what the Navy does, that's to the great benefit of the Navy. And he demonstrated for his entire career that ability to engage the press and the media, and I think the Navy benefited from it. Thank you. Keeping with that media theme, um, Tom, I'm just wondering if you could talk a little bit about Dowling and uh, the creation of Navy News, which has been an institution for quite some time now. Well, yeah, Navy News was introduced um, towards the end of Dowling's tenure. Um, and it's not something that he was necessarily directly involved in the creation of, but it's certainly something that he welcomed with open arms. Um, he had a message which was included in the first issue uh, and he spoke about uh, a lot of things which uh, sound quite relevant to us today in the Navy where he talks about how important it is to uh, engage the families of, of Naval members as much as it is to engage those members themselves with what the Navy's doing and why that's important. Um, so I think that wasn't something that really had been talked about to that extent before and suddenly you've got this newspaper that's going, it's being flown out to ships um, and it's being sent home to families to... Um, to inform everyone about what the Navy's doing. And in that sense, um, he, he certainly showed um, some awareness of, of where uh, the Navy was going and, and sort of the, the military more broadly in how important it was to engage not only Navy members, um, but their families and the, and the public more broadly. I think that was quite an impressive development. Thank you. Jack, looking at Burrell, um, I'm just wondering if you could tease out a little bit more the implications of the DDG purchase and whether there was any um, appreciation of the momentousness of that, that decision and the implications for every single part of the Navy. That's Actually, I think that, that's a tough one. Um, I don't think the implications were really clear to Admiral Burrell when the decision was made because, in a sense, the decision was made for him. He was not looking to, to start um, a, a USN line uh, in the Navy at the time. And he was certainly aware of the difficulties that, that would emerge uh, once he had. Um, that said, um, even during his time, um, we did begin exchange postings with, with the USN. So in, in that sense, um, I think there was a recognition that um, we would have to change the way we did, we did business and, and not rely um, on, on the RN um, as we had in the past uh, so much for our professional development and our warfare experience uh, in the future. Um, I, I think there's little doubt that he was aware of the, um, the necessary technological developments that the Navy was going to have to introduce. And I think um, he was also quite aware um, that the US Navy was probably in a, be in a better um, position to help the RAN with that than the RN would be. Um, he made a point um, immediately after the um, fleet air arm decision in, at the end of 1959 of making a visit to both the UK and the US um, to assess what the options for both for, well not so much for, for the fleet air arm, he was, he, in fact he was told not to examine carrier options at all, but um, certainly from the point of view of the surface navy and uh, the, the new submarine force which was being talked about um, he spent a considerable amount of time uh, both in UK and US looking at what, what was on offer um, and 
it's probably fair to say too that the RN did themselves no favours in the way that they treated um, him and his, and his delegation when they were in the UK. Um, he, he was uh, given short shrift by um, Mountbatten. Um, uh, basically, Mountbatten accused him of having lost the fleet air arm and it clearly wasn't uh, as simple as that. Um, but the RN also, and, and to be fair to the RN too, that they were not really in a strong position to help us in the way that we needed help. They were having enough trouble um, sorting themselves out at the time, uh, having their own funding difficulties and, and other things. Um, and they were not in a position to, to, do, to do any of the kind of design changes we wanted uh, for, in our surface ships. Um, we also were looking um, at the introduction of the submarine service at the time and he looked at um, the porpoise, the, the predecessor to the O-boat there, and was pretty impressed with it. Um, and subsequently, when he went to the US, um, the, the difference in the way he was treated was stunning. Um, he, he was given the, the, the treatment that uh, all subsequent CNSs have been given, um, personal aeroplane from the CNO, and um, just squired around the country um, in, in the way that we've all, I guess, come to expect. Um, but um, what he also saw, though, was um, a level development, I think, that did not exist um, within, within the RN and potential um, for us to, to make um, progress in a way that would not necessarily have been the case too had we stayed with the RN. But as I said at the beginning, he, he was very much alive to the, the fact that um, introducing a new logistics system, introducing the need for new training approaches, uh, we're certainly going to change uh, the RAN into the future. But um, I think, in, on the one hand, he, he really had no choice. He, he was forced to go that way. But I think, on the other hand, he saw that it was the way to go. Thank you. Greg, coming back to Harrington and, and maybe his haul-down report, um, I'm wondering if you can talk a bit more about that and the way it was received and, and the impact it had for for Harrington's successor, Admiral McNichol. Um, and again, maybe just particularly reflecting on that seagoing versus um, national level um, uh, command and influence idea. Absolutely. Um, I think one of the, the first things though is that Admiral um, Burrell was uh, moved, one of the first chiefs who moved to Canberra. And when he moved, the uh, Department of Administrative Services put him in a, an equivalent uh, executive, senior executive service house in, I think, Narrabunda, which had two bedrooms and was, you know, panel board and was absolutely horrendous. And he, uh, it was just disgusting compared to Admiralty House in Sydney, which is fleet commander, uh, the fleet commander resided in and had visitors. So the first thing Admiral Burrell did was invite the US uh, ambassador, defence attaches from across Canberra to visit him in his house in Narrabunda. So within a few months, he actually had moved to a real house. But that shows the type of situation that was involved in the early, well, late 50s, early 60s in Canberra, where they didn't want defence people interfering with the day-to-day machinations of the government. Now, when Harrington took over, sorry, I'm getting to the answer. <laughs> when Harrington took over, I said that he thought people were, uh, you know, a problem. But really, he was out of his depth as far as the political machinations of the government were involved. 
He realised that, he tried to overcome it, but I don't think he ever did. Right. McNichol, who uh, took over after him, was a very much a smooth operator who uh, got on very well with everyone. Harrington was not that type of person. He was an honest professional. He stood up for what was right. I liked him. Right, this would be my... I, if I knew him, I'd like him. Um, however, doing a haul-down report which basically throws everything at your successor didn't really achieve a lot. In fact, uh, everyone went down and said, you know, the, the typical administrative answer, they put it on a file, they passed it to all the senior people who made a note and said, oh, obviously we're taking care of this, um, it's not a problem, the guys missed the point, you know, what's Power got to do with anything? We've got counterinsurgency operations about to happen in Indonesia or in, you know, elsewhere, so this is all irrelevant. Now, it fell on deaf ears. To me, the long-term thing is that he saw much of the future Australia of Australia's strategic outlook and where we should be, for, at least from a naval viewpoint. Um, he saw that, he tried to make it happen, but he didn't have any staff. By himself, he couldn't do it. You know, he, he can't convince people. He tried, but by himself, he was not in a position to actually make the changes that were required. And it was too late in the day to do that in his haul-down report. You could have a big discussion about haul-down reports, what's the purpose, whether they achieve anything, you know, and whatever. The, the other point I'll make just before I finish is to just follow on from Peter's comment about administration. And the, one of the reasons why ponderous naval administration was one of Harrington's complaints was because the system collapsed. Now, very, it's true that the secretaries for the Navy or Defence, when there was Defence Department, were quite experienced people. They were specialists in Navy administration who knew all the subjects backwards. That's why some of the chiefs were upset, because they knew more about it. In fact, the people I met when I was younger were more Navy than Navy, was the comment, and they were civilians. They were Navy civilians. In 1963, the third secretary of the Navy left and was replaced, because there were no more specialists, was replaced by a fantastic manager from Defence and became the new secretary for Navy. Wasn't a bad manager, was actually very good, got on well politically, but did not have the depth of knowledge on every file that these previous secretaries had had. I don't think that's happened since. I don't think that knowledge exists. Now, you could say that doesn't matter, but the classic example, which Harrington himself didn't mention, but which Sherger mentioned, who was the chief of uh, Defence Force staff at the time, was that uh, he remembered a meeting where Harrington tried to actually win the argument about keeping Melbourne as an aircraft carrier and keeping it employed. And uh, he nudged the Chief of uh, Army, or the Chief of General Staff at the time, and uh, the Chief of General Staff stood up and said, well, expressed the view that, is it true that the Navy's changed its mind from six months ago? And then pulled out the record that showed the Navy had argued totally the opposite six months previously. Now, that would never have happened when you had these specialists 
of naval uh, administration because they knew what the Navy had argued. But that embarrassment that was caused in this meeting led to major problems for the Navy, and it happened all the time for Harrington. So, uh, you know, the, the system not working, it had collapsed. The administration was swamped, and that was another thing of modernity. Back in the 50s, you would only get a small amount of correspondence. By the early 60s, that correspondence was swamping people. And perhaps you couldn't memorise the files. I don't know. Anyway, that's just one viewpoint. Thank you. Sam, um, looking at peak and, and particularly your following on from your previous comment about him sort of being overwhelmed by uh, the events rather than taking, taking charge of them, do you think those things were, were sort of beyond his power to control or beyond anybody's power to control? Sure. Look, I think, I think to be honest, anyone would have struggled to, to be able to engage effectively with, with the, the ambition of Sir Arthur Tang and with his reform agenda, with the reform agenda of, uh, of the Whitlam government would have been, would have been extremely difficult. Um, as I mentioned earlier, Tang is an expert at this. This is what he does. He, he, he. You, you almost want to say he's a he's a professional manipulator. Perhaps he wouldn't go that far, but but Pete knows exactly how to how to how to get what he wants, and he knows exactly what he wants. He's he he's looking to bring together the 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 services, the defence group of departments. Bring some strategic coherence. He would he would call it, um, and to give to give the senior defence civilian leadership a greater degree of control over over all of those systems and over, over all of those policies. To a degree, what he's trying to do is 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 correct to some extent. I mean, it's it's logical that this starts to happen, um, but. Kane is is so driven and so ambitious and so single-minded, and he, at this stage he doesn't have a, a great deal of respect for military personnel. That will change going forward, but at this point he knows what he wants, and and he's going to get it regardless. So um, to a very great degree, he cuts out the service chiefs, and none of the service chiefs are, are particularly successful at at, at dealing with this. Um, uh, Tang engages directly with the services at, at, at a lower level than the service chiefs to get the information he needs. He puts together a, a report for government on the reorganisation of, uh, of the defence group of departments and he springs that on the service chiefs essentially when it's, when it's too late to really do anything about it. The service chiefs are left, are left quite powerless. So, yeah, it, it would have been very difficult for, for anyone as CNS to, to effectively... Uh, respond to that and to be able to engage effectively. But when you look at at Pete, he is this. He is, as I said earlier, he's 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 very warm, but but he's not a he's not a strategic level administrator. He he joined the navy to serve at sea, and he believes in he he he, he believes in sea service. He refers to some of the. the the, the more junior folks around Navy in Canberra as, um, as, as those officers that have what he terms the headquarters smell. 
and he talks about the importance that they understand that joining the Navy is not about shuffling paper, it, it, it's about being at sea. He remarks many times in his, um, in his latter career that the highlight of his service was his first command and as he told people, even even when he was an admiral, or in 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 to to public audiences, he said that was the highlight of my career, and it's all downhill from there. Navy has given him those skills to work at sea. They've given him those skills to to uh, to command effectively in combat. He has he has very significant combat experience uh, where he where he he uh, he did very well. But he hasn't been set up to work politically, and he doesn't really want. To. He doesn't have a have a lot of respect for those folks that uh, that, that that do the poli the that do the networking, the politicking. He has a bit of a hard time looking at their different strategic perspectives. So he doesn't have he doesn't have a great grip of the of the importance of what they're trying to achieve and why they're trying to achieve it, and he doesn't have the 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 skills to network and to 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 engage with them effectively and to help them to understand uh, his point of view in a way that they can understand. Um, peak is peak is is CNS at the wrong time, I guess you might say. It it would have needed someone with exceptional skills um, and and. To, to really have any effect, um, and Peak certainly, unfortunately, at, 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 at this point, um, was was not that man. And and I guess you also saw he had that level of confidence in in in, in those management frameworks that were already established. His his big aim, one of his key objectives, was making sure that those frameworks were were implemented and were followed effectively. Not necessarily looking at the big scheme of things. Uh, as to how they should be modified to suit the new environment. Um, Thank you. Uh, so, so he he finds it especially challenging. Thank you for that. Could I ask each of the panelists um, to make some concluding remarks about their chief, and and try and keep it to about one or two minutes each? Um, Peter, could I start with you, please? Yes, probably. Um, t um Three quick things. Um, one is uh, with the, the great technological changes going on during Collins's tenure, particularly in regard to aircraft carriers and getting the introduction of aircraft carriers, he had to deal with um, changes about whether the aircraft could fit um, with the advent of jet aircraft onto the um, onto our um, sized carriers and the delays with Melbourne and the angle flight deck. One of the things that comes out when you look at um, Collins's performance was he was prepared to, to wait before he told government all the twists and turns of, of that until he had a... Um, the information in a manageable way with some options. So he had the confidence to um, not withhold information but just wait until it was packaged to then to be able to present government, okay, so here's where, where we are now. So I think that demonstrated confidence he had um, as, a, um, as a service chief. That's one. Second one we haven't really covered, but very briefly, in terms of career, where Sydney um, um, had a deployment, extremely successful deployment of a carrier, um, and also he had to manage the 
destroyers where he had a situation where the new destroyers Anzac and Tobruk were delayed in entering service because of uh, complications and and teething problems with their fire control system. Um, he had to manage the older tribal class destroyers staying in theatre. He he would go up, talk to the crews about the long deployments and so on. So he was quite good at managing scarce resources for the operational effect. One thing he did miss he he was uh, he wasn't that keen on Sydney going back. And because he he thought there could be some other conflict in that Cold War scenario, um, so I think there are t- two major things. But I think overall he was uh, a most impressive chief of naval staff, and all the promise that people had in him um, through his career was realised. Thank you, Tom. Any summing up comments about Admiral Dowling? Yeah. So the point was made earlier about. Um seagoing officers versus officers who were potentially more politically savvy. And I think um, Admiral Dowling potentially saw himself or fancied himself as a uh, politically savvy officer. Um, I don't think that's untrue. Uh, And I think his very close relationship with Mountbatten, as well as his good personal relationships with a number of officers in the USN, certainly helped to maintain our relationships with those uh, countries during this time. there was certainly no backward movement uh, during those those years. And I think it was summed up best earlier um, in the idea that one of his greatest achievements was um, holding down the fort more so. Um, I don't think the Navy went backwards at all, certainly during his time. Um, and I think there were a number of decisions made during Dowling's time which set us up for success in the terms of the way that we... Uh, we're able to reconfigure into that world of, of guided weapons and, and moving away from the concept of Navy operations that we had in Collins's time. I think it was Dowling who sort of began that transition away uh, into the Navy that we saw certainly in the 80s and later. Thank you. Jack, um, looking at, at Burrell, do you have any concluding remarks? Uh, thanks, Alistair. Yes. Um, one thing I'd like to, to say is that um, perhaps to a, a degree that was noteworthy at the time, Admiral Burrell was actually a real, he was a real people person. He was known for the, the care and attention he, he took about the people who served with and, and, and for him. Um, and what, to what extent that actually influenced his ability to, to operate as a CNS, I'm, I'm not so sure. His greatest strength, I think, was that he came into the job uh, recognising that the extent of the problem confronting the Navy as far as this material state was concerned and immediately realised that there was no plan in place to do anything formally about it and, and set about changing that. Um, perhaps the, um, the, the failing on, on his part, if, if, you, if it can be described as that, uh, it was, was his own um, sense that he was not really the right person to be trying to get stuff through the bureaucracy. Um, he, he was not natural at doing that. Um, he didn't network as we um, understand the term now very effectively. Um, and for, for example, um, he actually wrote to the First Sea Lord at one stage and asked if the First Sea Lord would take up the RAN's case with Prime Minister Menzies when Menzies was visiting the UK because he hadn't taken it up with Menzies himself. Um, and I think his... his um, um, his relationship with um, Defence Minister Town- Townley was similarly distant. Uh, Town- Townley actually, um, 
began to invite the service chiefs to gather with him on Tuesday evenings when Parliament was sitting in his office for, for drinks. And um, our, our Admiral Burrell attended two or three of these and then decided he had better things to do. Um, I, I was critical when, when I first um, saw that, but in discussing it with both the Admiral's family and, and Sam Bateman as well, I, I discovered that um, he probably was entirely right to do so. Sherger was uh, um, known for... Um, his, his drinking and risque storytelling, and apparently those nights uh, degenerated quite significantly. Um, but um, he, he was not—he was not good at that. He, he also uh, resented being questioned in committee uh, about technical issues relating to the navy. Uh, he considered it to be an impertinence uh, to be questioned, and questioned he was uh, in particular by Sugar, both as chief of the air staff and um, as chairman of the chiefs of staff committee, um, who never let a navy project uh, go through without um, severe questioning. So I think, um, as I indicated earlier, um, there's a lot that uh, we can thank Admiral Burrell for in, in his time, but I think we also need to keep in mind that um, he would not have achieved all he did, I think, without the guiding hand of John Gordon beside him. Thank you. Um, Greg, could I ask you for some concluding remarks on Admiral Harrington? Yeah, um, just, just to sum up, I, I think the role of sea power in Australia's strategic planning was something that Admiral Harrington obviously felt was the most important part of the Chief of Navy's or Chief of Naval Staff's uh, job. He tried, uh, within the formal structures of defence, if you read all the formal policy documents, the forward defence strategy of the time makes sense. There's no reason it's not favouring any service over another service that makes sense. But the way it was implemented was by putting boots on the ground and with their support. And that had implications for the rest of the 60s and long-term implications for Australia. Uh, which really, Harrington in 1965 offered the alternative. He said... Uh, the alternative to a land-centric version of forward defence. What he said was that if you have a sea control strategy as part of forward defence and avoid boots on the ground, that's your option. And uh, there's within the defence documents, there was no reason why you couldn't do that and interpret it that way. But within government and the political part of the, uh, the story, it was never adopted. In fact, it was ignored. Um, purposely ignored. So I, I think it's like a missed opportunity uh, and it's really Harrington should be better known as a person who really was a forward thinker. Um, not necessarily successful at it, but he, was, he came up with his ideas. Well, restated the ideas. He didn't originate them. Uh, but anyway. Thank you. Sam, we'll keep trying. Um, do you have any concluding remarks about Admiral Peake? Thanks, Al. I guess, um, I guess concluding, I will just really uh, mention a couple of things. Um, as, I've, as I've alluded to, Peake, um, Peake was CNS during, during, a very, during a very difficult time. It was challenging for Navy. It was challenging for Peake, uh, for Peake professionally. He felt very much... Uh, left out of the conversation because of those big holistic uh, defence uh, 
um, defence and, and, and strategic organisational conversations that were going on around him. Um, when you look at this at, at, at that kind of strategic level, you see that that defence is changing. Defence is going from um, single services working as as uh, as stove pipes with very significant built-up expertise. So maybe civilians at um, uh, at the strategic level have a lot of of knowledge. They understand how to do navy capability. They've done it for many, many years, but but Tang's trying to change that. Tang's trying to make this holistic, that all capability meets meets a holistic, strategic uh, objective, not not a not a not a specific naval objective. Um, Tang is Tang is introducing what would go on to become the, the Australian Defence Organisation, speaking with with that one voice, and it's and it's more than just defence as the military planning on how to win battles at sea. It is how defence works at a strategic level in terms of in terms of diplomacy and influence and strategic environment shaping and all these different things, um, uh, which, as we said, peaks struggle to see. It was important that this kind of stuff happen, but the language that was that was being used it, it was it was different. Navy wasn't used to it, and and and, and peak wasn't used to it. And you saw looking forward even further when you go through the latter seventies, even into the early eighties, and you look at the uh, the big carrier debate, and Navy to a degree struggles a little bit to 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 speak that language. To engage at that level, um, and I think when you when you track that that back, um, Peak's period as as CNS and his uh, his ability or his struggle to engage with Tang and and those strategic level reforms are are a, are a precursor to this challenge that's going to continue for the next several years, and it's something that uh, that that they were lessons that it took a while for Navy to learn. And Peak's period is a great exemplifier of that. Um, the other points I would make about um, I would make I would make about Admiral Peak is that while he struggled in some of those organizational capability um, uh, uh, type arenas, when it came to personnel, which is something that as I've mentioned he cared very, very deeply for. He was he was very attached to um, to uh, to naval personnel, um, he uh, his time as CNS, he was able to make some some positive change. Uh, uh, his period of CNS saw the fallout from the Group Pay scheme. So this was the introduction to Navy of the scheme by which uh, sailors were paid different amounts of money based on their rating. So you saw the technical sailors. Uh, were, were in some cases paid, uh, junior technical sailors were paid more money than senior non-technical sailors. And this caused uh, a great degree of angst in the fleet. Um, there was some uproar. Uh, uh, some, some, some people have described this as almost on the verge of mutiny. Um, Peak, Peak uh, was very concerned with this. And, and you saw in, in, in Peak's representations to government that that care and concern
Byrne came through. So he was pushing changes in, uh, in, in, in pay and conditions for naval personnel that were, uh, that, were that were going to have long-lasting effects. He saw uh, 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 great improvements in things like hardship allowances, in travel allowances, in, uh, in retirement benefits um, for, uh, for sailors, and he was able to, to effectively respond to the challenges of, of group pay, to have the group pay scheme changed to, uh, to satisfy some of those concerns. And you'll see as Pete, as Pete gets older, um, as, he, as he moves on from the Navy into retirement, this is something that stays with him for many years, almost right up to his death. So he is engaging on behalf of, uh, of sailors uh, who, who were deployed to the Malayan emergency to ensure they received the recognition that he felt they were entitled to. He spoke out uh, on behalf of uh, Norman Banks when it came to the, uh, the children overboard uh, incident in the early 2000s. He, uh, he, he voluntarily and quite passionately uh, made representations in front of, uh, of the Senate inquiry and he, uh, he came out publicly uh, very much against the, uh, Australia's commitment to the 2003 um, uh, Iraq war and, and, and again driven, driven to, uh, to a great extent by his concern for Navy people. So whereas we saw Pete struggling um, to, to, to a significant degree to, to confront those challenges from Kane, from the Whitland, from the Whitlam government. Um, on the personnel side, I think that was something he had a lot more success with. Um, and it's, it's something that I think uh, this generation of Navy people can look back on, um, uh, hopefully with a great deal of, uh, of gratitude. Sam, thank you very much. Thank you for joining us. And for more information about the Australian Naval History video and podcast series, simply search for Naval Studies Group on your search engine. Goodbye for now.